Good morning, everybody, and a very warm welcome to morning worship here at Hillhead. As you can see, we're still in the summertime and still quite a lot of folk enjoying the opportunity to take some time out. We're going to begin by singing a hymn which celebrates God's love. All the words um, for the hymns and anything else you need are on the sheet, and hymn words will also appear on the screen behind me. Um, If you're able to and would like to, you're invited to stand with us as we sing together. God is love, his the care, tending each everywhere. going to come now to God in prayer, a short service, uh, sorry, a short prayer that I will lead, after which we are um, all invited to join together in the Lord's Prayer. And as is our custom here at Hillhead, please say that in the version that is most familiar to you, the language that is most natural for you. Um, And if you're not sure of the words, that's absolutely fine, because there will be a version appear on the screen behind me. And if you prefer just to sit quiet, that's okay too. So let's come to God in prayer. Living God, we give you thanks and praise for you have made us and given us life. You have redeemed us and set us free. Loving God, we give you thanks and praise for you have found us and made us your own, named us and called us beloved. Accompanying God, we give you thanks and praise. For you have promised to be with us always, and nothing can separate us from your love. Living, loving, accompanying God, we worship and adore you joining our voices with those of countless others in the prayer Jesus gave his friends, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, 
I was going to put some pictures up on the screen. I'd put them into my PowerPoint and I looked at them before the service um, and you can't see them. So I'm afraid the grown-ups are just going to have to use their imagination, although they could come and join us at the front. I would like some people to come and help me. I've got some maps here. Um, Anybody who feels they'd like to help me with something with a map? That would be great. We're going to start with this one, which I'll hold. You'll have to come quite close because it's not ever so big. Can you find our church or where our church would be on that map? There. There. That's it, just there. Well done. Yep, so on the corner of Cresswell Street and Cranworth Street. Um, Can you find Kelvin Grove Art Gallery Museum on there? So that's right down there. So if we've got, we've got some visitors today. If a visitor was going to go to Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum from here, do you think we, could, we should just give them a map and say off you go? Do you think that's helpful? Okay, thank you, Freya. Yeah, she said it would help a bit, but they could do with knowing a bit more as well. Um, so I use this thing called Google Maps that other direction finders are available. Um, and it's done something to my map. What's it done to my map? Can you see? Yeah. Put dots on it to show you where, where, um, how to get there and how many minutes it takes and how many miles it is. That's right. And can you see how, how many minutes it is on the dotted line? 15 minutes. Okay. And is there another line on there? Can you see another line? What's, how long does it take you on the other line? 21. 21. So these are walking directions. I'm not sure how well you can see it. But we've got a dotted route and a grey route that are suggested routes that you could get from here to Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum. So would that be a better thing to do, to give them than, than just a map? Yeah? Do you think that would be good? Okay. Is there anything we could do that would be even better than that? Yeah. What could you do, Sam? Yeah, so give them the map, but give them some directions as well. Unfortunately, there were supposed to be some directions on the end, but uh, when I came to print it off, they didn't. So we could write it out for them, couldn't we? We could say, go out of the door, and where would you go? Which way would you turn? Left. Left, that's right. And then what would you do? So you'd go, you go out of the door, and you turn left, and... and Walk straight. Wait, yeah, walk to the corner. Then left. And then left. And then walk. And then walk quite a long way. And then left. Uh-huh. And then keep walking. Where would you turn left the second time? At the museum. Uh, yes, it's quite hard, isn't it? If you give somebody... Who's, who's good at giving directions? Thank you. I think you can go and sit down now. Who's good at giving directions? Who's ever asked for directions when you're driving along or walking along and somebody says, now you go along there until you get to the such and such, and then you go... I think it's the third right, but it might be the second right. Have you ever had that? Or somebody gives you the directions and, and they're... This is like my mum used to be. She didn't, never drove. So she'd say, well, you go up that street. And I go, but I can't drive up that mum, street, mum. It's a no-entry sign. So the best way is even beyond giving directions, isn't it? How's the very best way to help somebody to find something? Wendy? Take them. Take them, thank you. It always depend on Wendy, thank you. So... Maps are useful, directions are better, but somebody to take you along the way is even better still. And one of the ways that we understand Jesus, and one of the ways Jesus talks about himself, is as being the way. The way I like to understand that, as much as anything, is that Jesus accompanies us, he comes with us. Unfortunately, we can't see him, and it's not quite as easy sometimes as having a literal friend beside us. But we believe as Christians that that Jesus travels with us. So we're going to sing a song that I know is quite a favourite here um, about that. One more step along the world I go. 
going to enter our time of the service when we continue to explore the theme in different ways. So if your main desire is to listen to scripture and listen to a sermon, just stay put because I will be speaking from here. If you're somebody who finds that you're, um, you enjoy colouring or doing puzzles, we have a number of those over in the snug area at the back. Uh, it's still possible to listen and colour, or so people tell me anyway. Uh, if you're feeling creative and you want to go and make something, Cathy uh, has arranged some wonderful activities up on the mezzanine, so feel free to go there. And if you happen to get finished and you need to move around, that's fine. You can go and do something else. Just try and do it quietly. If you're really small and just need somewhere to run around and play, then through in the memorial room we have sort of like crash toys, but that is all self-supervised uh, for the summer months. And then a bit later on in the service, uh, we will all come back together in order to share communion together and to continue to sing some more songs of worship. So we'll have some music now as we move around to whichever zone we wish to be in. Bible reading today is some verses from John chapter 14. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live. You also will live. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas, not the Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and he will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything. And remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not let them be afraid.
three years ago, you very kindly granted me some sabbatical leave. And during that time, I visited churches in Stirling, in Bath, and in London. And whilst I was visiting Bloomsbury Baptist Church in central London, my daily walk took me through Russell Square. And in Russell Square, I would see people of different nationalities enjoying an oasis of green amidst the hustle and bustle of that part of a very busy city. I could sit on a bench and watch the world go by. And like other countless carefree visitors or people who live and work there, just enjoy the greenness, the birdsong, the flowers. I was also in London the last few days of July, And just a week ago, I sat outside the British Library in Euston Road with some friends, drinking tea, eating cake, chatting, and enjoying the sunny weather. And then we went our separate ways to catch trains, in my case to Glasgow, and in the case of my friends, to Brighton, Norwich, and Leeds. It was a lovely short break away from the busyness of church life, in a place where I've always felt safe and comfortable. So when I heard the news events on Wednesday night, they struck me more closely than other equally and perhaps more tragic events of recent weeks. It's not that I don't care about the events elsewhere. Of course I do. It was just that this one resonated more closely with me. A kind of there but for the grace of God go I moment. But the thing is, with a lot of these events, and even with the, uh, the building collapse in Partick yesterday, I find in the media there's an immediate assumption of terrorism and an immediate assumption that the perpetrator is going to be a Muslim. And that's worrying. That's very worrying. And whilst it is true that some of the attacks across the world are motivated by religion or extremism, Others, as is the case with what happened in Russell Square, are done by people who have severe and seemingly untreated mental illness. And it's within this context that people of different faiths try to distance themselves from extremists and get on with their life. Or as the poster that we have over there and on our notice board outside says, to coexist. It's been around a while now, this little graphic. Coexist, composed of symbols that represent different faiths and different ideologies. And of course, in recent weeks, there have been surprising and encouraging expressions of solidarity, grace and tolerance in many of the areas where such tragedies have occurred. I think one of the ones that struck me particularly was the presence of Muslims at a Roman Catholic mass following the murder of a locum priest in France. Lots of images up there on the web about that one. It seems to me that it's impossible to reflect on this sixth of the I am sayings of Jesus without recognising the context we find ourselves in locally, nationally and globally. Impossible to do so without both taking some time to recognise the diversity of understanding and belief around salvation within Christianity itself and the ways that sincere Christians may view and engage with those of other faiths. So... Some of what I'm going to share today is more didactic teaching than charismatic preaching. And some of you will will know far more about this than I do. Some of you will have forgotten more than I have ever known. And probably you will have your own standpoints on this. But it's possible that for some it's new and for all of us there are some questions that will be worth thinking about. But let's start while thinking about the scripture that Paul has just read for us. After the 23rd Psalm, John 14, with its beautiful imagery of Jesus going ahead to prepare a place for his followers among the many dwellings in his father's house, is one of the Bible passages most frequently used for funerals. And it's a wonderful image. It's a warm and inclusive image at a time of grief and loss. It suggests that Jesus himself will come and greet those we love who have crossed the threshold of death 
into eternity. When I first started to conduct funeral services, I could reasonably expect that people would know this story. But over the years, I've come to realise that actually for an awful lot of people, it's unfamiliar. And I will find myself, as I read it in a funeral, having to stop and say, Thomas, who was one of Jesus' friends? Or Philip, one of Jesus' other friends? Even who Judas, not the Iscariot, is. What once was common knowledge needs to be unpacked in a context not only where there is widespread biblical ignorance, but where there will also be people of other faiths and none. How is the story heard by people who are Sikh or Hindu, whose understanding involves a cycle of death and rebirth from which they seek to escape? What hope or comfort can a story like this offer to people who are agnostic or atheist. In a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-faith and largely secular context, and in a world where parodies of faith are linked to extreme violence, these are really important questions. And perhaps it's especially important when we come to the words of Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Just a few verses on from the inclusive image of the house with its many apartments. It's more like a giant tenement building really than a lot of of mansions. We have a saying that is often probably usually read in a very precise, narrow, exclusive way. That the only people who may reach God are those who believe in Jesus, that only Christians can go to heaven. And certainly that's the understanding I grew up with. Nobody ever attempted to make or recognise that relationship between the two things that arise so close together, the many mansions and the one way through Jesus. And it struck me that a lot of that had to do with the way that I, I grew up. So I want us to start by thinking a little bit about our theological standpoint shapes the way we read the text and how that then shapes our understanding of faith, mission and ministry. And I suspect we will have different views on that as we start and we will probably have different views on that as we end and that's okay. I'm going to do it firstly within an explicitly Christian framework assuming that this is a Christian text to be read and understood by those who call themselves Christians. And then I want to look at how Christians think about other faiths before we come back very briefly to try and think what perhaps Jesus means when he says these words. Now, it is quite complicated, so um, I'm going to give you a handout. You didn't think you were coming to school, but you are. So if you'd like to just... Pass those along, take one and pass them along the rows um, as we do so. You can take these away. Um, I don't need them back. Oops. I think there should be enough to go around for everybody to see one if they wish to. And we'll start with the side that says some Christian views on salvation. If we hear the text in an exclusive Christian way, if we hear the text in an exclusive Christian way, it seems to say that only Christians can find the way to God through Jesus, which is fine until you ask yourself, well, what do I mean by a Christian? So on the sheet, we've got a range of different Christian perspectives on salvation. And within that, there are two views that are often set in opposition to each other, Calvinism and Arminianism. But there's actually a much broader spectrum of understandings that extends in both directions beyond either of them. There is such a thing as hyper-Calvinism. I couldn't find a nice, tidy definition of that, so I missed it off. Um, But beyond Arminianism, we have Wesleyanism and Universalism. The reality is that Baptist Christians have never finally said this is the way we understand it. 
The very first Baptists, Smith and Halwes, were Arminian in their theology. They had a view of general atonement, that Christ died for all. But it wasn't very long before the dominant stream within Baptists held to a Calvinist understanding, a particular atonement. Baptist history is complicated, to say the least, but it's probably fair to say that over time there's been a gradual move towards what is often termed evangelical Calvinism, which frankly boils down to Arminianism in practice, or pretty close to it. My own sense is in the last century, the majority of Baptists, at least at grassroots level, have moved even further along the spectrum with an emphasis on God's grace, mercy and love so that we come to something like Wesley's four alls. All need to be saved, all can be saved, all can know they are saved, all can be saved to the uttermost. Or as most of my Methodist minister friends say it, all can be saved, all will be saved, and all will be saved to the uttermost. So Methodism has moved on a little bit from Wesley as well. The point is, you see, that even if we read this text as exclusively relating to Christians, then we need to know what we mean by a Christian. And the trouble is that throughout the 2,000 years there have been Christians, there's never been one neat, tidy, universally accepted definition of that. What is understood by many as evangelical Christianity is actually a relatively new development within a long tradition. So as Christians, we do live with a diversity of views. I wonder where each of us puts ourselves on that spectrum and, and whether that's changed over time. And if it has, what's prompted that change? I think individually it's important to understand why we believe what we do and not just because somebody told us from the front. So it's important to know why we believe as it is what we believe. And to my knowledge, within our Baptist unions in Scotland and across the whole of the United Kingdom, our people and congregations right across that spectrum, all saying they're Christian, and each of them signed up to a declaration of a principle that allows them to do so. And within that declaration of principle, we agree notionally to accept that diversity. So here's the thing. If it's nigh on impossible to reach consensus about what it means to be a Christian, what hope is there when we look a bit more widely? How do we as Christians in our wonderful diversity relate to those of other faiths? And how do we then read this text and others in the complex reality that is 21st century Glasgow or any other context for that matter? So on the other side of the sheet, I've sketched out three broad categories into which most Christians will fit themselves. And here again is a range of views. On one side, we have a narrow exclusivist view. And on the other end, an extremely broad pluralist view. And in between, there's all kinds of options for permutations and combinations. And within each of these three categories, I've tried to identify some of the questions and challenges that arise. Because actually, it's easier to find incorrect or unhelpful answers than it is to find helpful ones. To a first approximation, one in three people on this planet define themselves as Christian or may be defined as Christian by others. So put crudely, an exclusivist viewpoint says that two-thirds of the Earth's population are condemned because they were born in the wrong place. And if to be a Christian means to be part of some mysterious elect or to have been baptised in a specific rite, or to have prayed a certain prayer, then even vast numbers of people who are notionally Christian are doomed. Including within that, babies who die in infancy. Including people who have cognitive impairment that prevents them from understanding or making a decision. And so the question that we're left with is, what kind of a God behaves like that 
And yet, a strictly exclusive way of reading, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, says that. Two in three people on earth will go to hell. And actually, probably quite a few people who think they're Christian. And a lot of babies. And a lot of people who couldn't actually understand. So that's the trouble we have with an exclusive worldview. An inclusive view of other faiths there is inevitably more woolly. Um, and there are at least two ways that people understand other faiths inclusively. I wonder how many people here have been to the St. Mungo Museum of Religious Life in Glasgow. For you? Okay. If you haven't, please do, because it's a wonderful experience. And what you will discover as you go around there is that there are rituals and rites across all world faiths that are very similar. I wonder how many people here have read any extracts in English translation from the Quran or from the Bhagavad Gita or any of the other sacred texts of Hindus or Muslims. Certainly anybody studying theology should have done. Um, We had to read quite a lot when I was studying to be a minister. And what's really interesting is if you take them out of the book, take off the labels and give them to people, they very often can't tell you which one they come from. There's a lot of similarities. The love your neighbour as you love yourself is common to all faiths and none. So one of the inclusive views that Christians have towards other faiths is to say, and bear in mind this is slightly arrogant potentially, well, actually, that's a kind of local, culturally conditioned response to the same God. It's not fully true, because only Jesus has the truth, but there is some truth in them. These people are on the way. Of course, they could say that about us as well. Another one way people look inclusively is to try and take account of the accident of people's birth. And they say, well, actually, that exclusive view of God is untenable. We want a God who is loving and fair-minded, a God who could deduce correctly that this person living in the place where they never heard about Jesus, had they done so, would have responded to that. It's not fair that somebody should be consigned to hell just because they're born in the middle of a forest in the middle of nowhere kind of argument. And the Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner termed, coined a term anonymous Christian to describe such people. These are people who are Christian but don't actually know it. Just a thought. How would you feel if somebody called you an anonymous Sikh or an anonymous Muslim? One of the really helpful things about an inclusivist position is it opens the way for constructive interfaith relationships and especially allows for areas of cooperation in daily life where common values are shared. And we've seen some of that with people of different faiths responding together to tragedies and uh, some of these awful events that have happened. Dialogue, interfaith dialogue, is not about watering down what we believe so as to be inoffensive. Rather, it's about having enough confidence to share our identity honestly and openly and listen to that of the other. So Muslims can attend Mass. And Christians can visit a Gurdwara or a temple. Perhaps the inclusive position is best understood by a saying attributed to Jesus. Whoever is not against us is for us. Lastly, there's a pluralist viewpoint that says all faiths are equally valid they're all culturally conditioned and they're all part of the same quest for meaning. And that's an attractive viewpoint, it has to be said, but it still has its own challenges. Because within the major faiths of the world, there are some differences that you can't just gloss over them. So all three Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, operate with a linear understanding of time. But Sikhism, Buddhism and other Eastern faiths have a cyclic view, a cyclic view with multiple reincarnations. And for them, salvation is to escape from these cycles of rebirth. 
Just to ignore these differences and say they don't matter is disingenuous. And what about those who define themselves as atheists? Should they be forced to enter some kind of eternal life? Or what about those people who just don't find that they're represented by any ideology, any faith? And does a universalist view exclude anybody? Are there people that we think are so intrinsically evil that they are beyond salvation? The question that people ask, could Hitler ever go to heaven? Could Judas go to heaven? And perhaps the image that best fits with that viewpoint is the one of the many mansions. And I found this rather beautiful painting uh, when I was looking around this week researching. You may or may not agree with it, that's fine, but it's a very beautiful image I think it certainly allows for an inclusivist view of other faiths as well as a pluralist view of all faiths. But what do we do with this saying of Jesus that I am the way and nobody comes to the Father but by me? Firstly, I think we have to discard the wrong-headed notion that Jesus' task is to be a sentry and turns away those who do not conform with some incomprehensible definition of a Christian. He doesn't say, I am the one who guards the way. He says, I am the way. I am the road. Secondly, I think we need to recognize the earnest endeavor of all who seek God by whatever name they know, within the context they find themselves to be. Perhaps we could say, or consider saying, not no one comes to the Father but by me, but all who seek the Father will come via me. That the way is open for everyone to discover the path to God. And lastly, we need to hold together, as Jesus did himself, the mystery of his exclusive claim he makes to be the route to God with the inclusive promise of many mansions. When I was studying theology, one of my tutors described himself as an exclusivist pluralist. He was firmly committed to a pluralist view of faith and he was equally committed to the uniqueness of Christ as the way that he reached the Father. That may or may not fit with your understandings and that's okay. But one of the beautiful things about images such as these One of the beautiful things about the words of Jesus, one of the beautiful things about our Baptist ecclesiology is that we journey on together. We travel together seeking truth, seeking life in the footsteps of the one who is the way to God, the one who is Jesus the Christ. This part of John 14 is very beautiful. It oozes comfort for us in times of sorrow and loss. It offers us hope beyond the grave and the assurance of Jesus' accompaniment through death. In the troubled times in which we live, perhaps we don't need to understand exactly what he means, but rather to absorb the encouragement and comfort he offers to us and all people. It's a troubling world out there. Let's not fool ourselves. But actually taking hardline stances isn't going to help. We need to trust in the one who said, I'm the way to God. The one who said, in my father's house are many mansions. And would I have told you that if it wasn't so? So what we're going to do together is to sing an old Scottish paraphrase of part of John 14. And I suggest we remain seated as we do so.
A prayer for the spaces in between. Let us pray. Unchanging God, we bring our prayers to you today for our seemingly ever-changing world. In these times of uncertainty, when we impatiently wait, what will happen next? During this time of campaigning before the presidential elections in the United States that will affect the whole world. During this time between the EU referendum and knowing what our world will look like when the UK does leave the EU. During the summer recesses in both the Westminster and Scottish parliaments in this space between one school or academic year and the next. Give us the courage to keep living in the open-endedness of the future without trying to limit the work of your spirit with our desire to sooner know what's going to happen next. Give us wisdom to discriminate between that which is our own desperate desire to forge forward and that which is your spirit's gentle nudging that the time is right. Give us the persistence to stay in the space between a little longer until we are ready to hear the call to move on. Give us the stillness to reflect on all that has happened in the world in these past few months. May we not be so hurried to move on to the next thing that we forget to give thanks or we forget to grieve. God, who is the only constant in this constantly changing world, give us the faith to stay true to the mysterious way in which you work in the world. We know that there are people all over this world and here in our city who do not have the mental space left over to dedicate it to worrying about the what-ifs of politics because every day is a personal struggle. We pray for areas of the world that see daily violence or ongoing conflict. There are too many places to name. And be with those who work for peace. We pray for those who are sick, that they may know your healing power at work in some way in their lives. We pray for those who mourn, that in their grief they will be comforted. We pray for the poor because we know that it is the poorest among us who shoulder the real cost of political upheaval and uncertainty. We pray for the disenfranchised and the marginalised, those whom it is easy for people in power to choose not to hear. Protect us from hurt and harm and help your people as we actively work towards a future where poverty and war are historical horrors and not ever-present truths. In the name of Jesus who said, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. Amen.
God of all places and of all people, who created everything and called it good. As we bring these our gifts of money, help us use them wisely to express the good news of that love that you have for all, expressed most firmly for us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we offer them. Amen. And as we prepare to gather around the Lord's table, we sing the hymn, The Love of God Comes Close. Among the greatest privileges in ministry is sharing communion in the homes of people who for reasons of health, age or infirmity can't be with us on a Sunday. As a group of us who go round to different people's homes and lead these short services and it's always an amazing blessing for me anyway. And usually for these short services I adapt the material from a little Baptist book called Patterns and Prayers for Christian Worship. It's a long time out of print. Um, It's superseded by resources with much more up-to-date language. But even so, it's a valuable little thing that I can slip in my pocket or handbag when I go out visiting. And so it seemed to me good today that rather than a bespoke liturgy, which is what I would normally do, we use one of those that the people we go out to experience. So the words are a little more formal, perhaps, than normal, but that's absolutely fine. The table of the Lord is spread. It is for those who will come and see in broken bread and poured out wine, symbols of his life shed for us on the cross and raised again on the third day. The risen Christ is present among his people and it's here that we meet him. It's for those who know him a little and long to know him more. All who are seeking him 
are invited to come and share in the feast. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son to everyone who has faith in him may not die but have eternal life. Jesus said, I'm the living bread that's come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, they will live forever. Moreover, the bread that I give is my own flesh. I give it for the life of the world. And from the Old Testament. How shall I repay the Lord for his benefits to me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all God's people. The Apostle Paul speaks these words. For I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's pray together. Eternal God and Father, we offer you our praise and thanksgiving for the creation of your world in all its richness and glory, for your gracious work of redemption in liberating the oppressed, renewing the weary, and forgiving the sinful, for your calling of men and women to share in the work of salvation in the story of Israel and in our story. For Jesus Christ, our Lord, the eternal word made flesh, sharing our humanity and revealing your love and compassion. For his life and ministry in word and action, his lifting up of the lowly and his healing of the broken. For his redeeming death on the cross for all humanity, of which this bread and this cup are the symbol and sign. Amen. So Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he shared it with his friends. And I've said this before and I will keep on saying it for as long as I'm a minister, I think. Those friends included somebody who would betray him. Those friends included somebody who would deny him. Those friends included people who would let him down, run away and be frightened. But he shared the bread with them as they were. And so as we are, wherever we find ourselves on that journey towards Jesus we are invited to share bread and to remember him. We eat as we receive. At the end of the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine, probably the cup known as the cup of blessing. The cup was to send people out at the end of the Passover feast. And he said, when you drink this, remember me. And so we will retain our cups that we might drink together to remember Jesus, yes. But also to remember that we are part of something so much bigger than this fellowship in this place on this day. That we are united with all others who have sought to follow Jesus throughout history.
And so we celebrate the love of God that comes close to us in Jesus Christ as we drink and remember. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope you have set before us so that we and all your children shall be free and the whole earth live to praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. salvationists would you 
I was all set for that high note as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you declared yourself the way, the truth, and the life. You also promised us that the Holy Spirit would come alongside us in the journey of faith. Reveal to us your truth and inspire us with your love so that we may find you on the way to the Father in whose house are many mansions made ready for us and for others. We ask that you accompany us in this way now and always.